Hello, and welcome to a special summer episode of the GPPR podcast. On this episode, Georgetown graduate Case Bouchard speaks about Islamophobia in the U.S. with Professor John Esposito, university professor at Georgetown and founding director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding in the Walsh School of Foreign Service. All right, so uh, first of all, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Okay, so I'm going to start with this first one. Uh, there's a belief about, you know, Samuel Huntington that Islamic culture is completely incompatible, and you've said that one of the major flaws of his argument is that he treats everything as monolithic, you know, Western civilization and otherwise. Um, yeah. So it ignores a lot of these significant facts. Um, so how do we address this issue, do you think? Well, I think, you know, uh, another another interesting person for you to talk to, by the way, is John Bowl, who's... Uh, now emeritus, but is, is comes to the center regularly and is uh, historian uh, by training, uh, was uh, the associate director of our center. But John is uh, is is very good on issues of uh, civilization and culture. You know, I think I, it's a funny thing to say about about uh, about Huntington to, to say that uh, that notion is really very it's very old and very naive. I mean, the fact right. is that if you talk about any civilization, look at Western civilization. If Western civilization, if there were such a thing as Western civilization, so so monolithic, how do you explain World War One and World War Two, for example? Right. Or even you know the continuing tensions when you look about some of the debates in the European Union are really you know, you know show the deep divisions that have existed historically. If you talk about the Islamic world, I mean just look at it today or look at it historically. If if there were anything like a single uh, uh, you know, Islamic uh, sort of civilization in the way that Huntington uses it. Look at the extent to which Muslim countries go to war with each other. Many of them are neighboring each other. I mean, you know, so historically, yeah. you know, you've had, you know, Libya and Sudan and Egypt not acting like neighbors half the time, but going at it. Today, if you look at um, Iran, the Gulf states, etc., um, you know, it kind of reminds me of, of there's a saying in sort of Jewish culture, and I, I, I never get it quite right, but it's it's something like wherever there are four Jews, there are five opinions or whatever. Well, <laughs> if you look at the history of uh, uh, of, of Islamic countries, uh, you know, we, we have that that certainly in the contemporary period um, that incredible you know uh, division. So to say again that there's an Islamic civilization, it, it just doesn't um, really it, it doesn't hold up in terms of the historical and political realities. Just as Huntington's statement, Islam has bloody borders, um, it, that makes no sense. Islam is a religion. Um, going off that just very briefly, yeah. um, do you think there's a problem in like the media or like politics in general where perhaps, I mean, not, not to quote Huntington himself, but uh, like pundits or other people come and give uh, advice on issues that they don't really fully understand, but their words are taken very seriously? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think that the indictment of where we are is um, is put on your TV uh, almost any time, but let's say Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, isn't it kind of inconceivable um, that you can look at people who are there as pundits and on one show uh, they will discuss conceivably four different areas. So it can be the failure of the economy. It can be the, uh, the the flaws on Wall Street, and it can be the exploding Middle East. 
and maybe even something about China. Now, right. how can one, you know, how can any individual, you know, claim to have that breadth of expertise? And that's what it's got to be, unless they're just going to say, well, we're just getting people and we're interested in hearing their opinions on things. But, you know, usually the, the, the sort of serious talking heads that are there um, are people who, who are seen as experts. And, and they very often they are experts, but they're experts in a particular area, you know. Right. So, you know, if you're an expert, for example, on American politics and let's say uh, also you've been an advisor to the Democratic Party, that's one thing. If you're then going to be you're talking like you're an expert on Social Security, Obamacare and, uh, and Sunni-Shia rivalry in the Middle East, and I think that that, that is very much, uh, um, you know, uh, it's be just, just become part of our culture. Uh, and, and then it spills over into things like presidential elections. We really don't expect much from our candidates. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Trump yeah. feels perfectly free to say he doesn't really read a lot about these things, etc. But that he can just opine on it. But, yeah, I do think that there's a, a real issue. And it's, a, it's an issue among ourselves. That is, we who are experts, one of the things that I was – very happy about when I was associated with Gallup for a number of years as a senior scientist was that when Gallup started to come out with its world polls and then spun out of that its polls of 35 to 40 Muslim countries and then Pew came in and others have since then. In the last decade, we are able to get beyond, um, beyond, um, the, the, you know, the, the kind of fallacy and the problem of simply looking to uh, experts as if they're experts on on everything, and they can speak in depth on it. What do I mean very, very concretely? Um, when we had the problem about um, uh, whether or not cigarette smoke was carcinogenic, uh, you could have two PhDs, one working for the cigarette company, one not working for the cigarette company, in who is scientist saying the direct opposite. Same thing is true at Middle East. I mean, we overlap. We don't disagree completely. We diverse scholars. But, for example, you could have Bernard Lewis and myself, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are people to do and policymakers to do? Our opinions are certainly important. I like to think so. I think, you know, if one looks at our expertise. But, you know, we both publish lots of books. We both have, you know, won a certain amount of awards. We both have a following. But people will then expect us uh, – and, and, and will rely uh, as if we can say and talk about all the countries or many of them in the Middle East. We can say what Muslims think or the Arabs think. Well, we can, we can say what we think they think. But the advantage of getting the hard data is that now when it comes to certain questions, you actually have some hard data and let the data lead the discussion. You know, um, well, that's still we're still not quite there. So, I mean, for example, during the um, the invasion of Iraq and post-Iraq, the Wall Street Journal celebrated uh, Bernard Lewis as like the, as it were, uh, you know, the doyan of Middle East studies and also with insight on the contemporary period. Um, and, uh, and in fact, the vice president at that time, Cheney, uh, had much to say about Lewis and his role. And the Wall Street Journal, again, would do a number of articles how Lewis was a key player in determining Iraqi policy, etc. Um, you know, it, it, you can't just rely on one expert. You have to look closer at data. The fact is that the administration got Iraq wrong, so 
we need to learn some lessons from that. Also, by the way, parenthetically, and this is not to get into Bernard Lewis, but Bernard Lewis <laughs> made his mark as a historian. And most of his work was really done on early Islamic history and then up until about the 18th century, and it was only in the last, let's say, 15 years or so that he began to opine on the contemporary situation, although he rarely did any research there. So I think that, you know, it, you know one has to be very um, careful about um, and far more uh, diverse in terms of the number of voices. That's why I can admire certain administrations more than others. I've done consulting, for example, uh, when Republican administrations were in, and what I what I admired was that if you were doing it with agencies, not so much that let's say uh, you know that a Ronald Reagan would call me in, given what I would have said about policy, you know, but right. but you would have state, uh, defense, uh, Pentagon. They might lean towards some people, but they would bring in diverse voices. And I think too often uh, we we uh, we get away from that, uh, and I and I think that's one of the risks that could come now in a very the very polarized situation that we have now. The risk will be that if we get a candidate who's very polarizing, that candidate will simply back himself up with people that will uh, you know justify policies that are counterproductive. And and in the area of international relations, you know, then you're getting into areas where people talk about things like. Invading countries, you know, uh, assisting other countries with their drone attacks. Um, it, it, it's a dicey area. Right. Um, well, that's that's a very good answer. Thank you. Um, what I wanted to ask, and this is actually a suggestion from your colleague, Dr. Haddad, um, going back to Samuel Huntington's question. Yeah. Is, do you think there's something in Christian or Western cultural that insists on portraying Islam as the other? Oh, Yeah. Uh, well, I think it happens with, with uh, on both sides, you know, uh, right. in terms of history. Um, uh, uh, but certainly, uh, it, I mean, it, it's within. I mean, if you think about it, um, if you, I don't think I sent you a piece on it, but I've written a lot on this. But uh, I did a book called The Islamic Threat, Myth, and Reality, and I think it was in the second edition. I talked about the fact that in the 1990s, you began to see not only the rise of Islamophobia, but it was fed by the fact that you began to uh, um, see writers both in Europe and America and a diverse group of writers talking about Islam as a triple threat, political, uh, civilizational, and demographic. And the first two, the idea was, uh, and in fact, uh, Lewis uh, reinforces that in his uh, Roots of Muslim Rage, uh, and, and through some others, because they not only would say that it's a political and civilizational threat today, but it would be, 14 centuries of jihad, you know, that kind of phraseology. In other words, for 14 centuries, uh, it's been, for 14 centuries, uh, Islam has been, you know, this threat. But in fact, um, despite what Muslims and Christians share in, in common, and there's a good deal, as well as differences, for political and theological reasons, there was a great deal of early conflict between the two. Um, so, you know, depending on where you were in the staying, you could either be saying, you, you know, you've got jihads against us, or you could be saying you've got a history of crusades, and, you know, along with the Inquisition and everything else against us. But certainly, I think that that, 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 uh, that belief is there, and it, it comes out in its most robust forms uh, when you look at, uh, you don't have to look far for it, um, the, uh, a number of very right-wing 
uh, Ann Coulter, uh, mm-hmm. people like uh, Savage and others, the kind of rhetoric that they use, uh, uh, Daniel Pipes, uh, but also uh, the, the, if you will, the, um, the pastor uh, preaches of hate. That is the Christian uh, clergy preaches of hate. So if you look at um, uh, John Hagee, Rod Parsley, both of whom, remember, were uh, uh, at one point taken by McCain the second time he ran for president as his kind of advisors. And then eventually he broke his relationship with them. If you look at their, their preaching and their writings, if you look at a Franklin Graham, if you look at a Pat Robertson, uh, you know, they, they, they trot up that, that sort of notion, you know. Uh, and um, and it, it's part of a problem that we have often when we in contentious areas of uh, ethnic conflict, national conflict, or religious conflict, where people look at their ideals and somebody else's reality. You know. Right. So you know, we Western democracies, there's a given for you. You know, then mm-hmm. look at the other. And I think that certainly historically, when religion played such a great role historically. Uh, in the development of empires, so you've had Christendom, and if you will, Islamic empires or Islamdom. Uh, um, uh, but even when you get that into the last four decades, in which religion reemerged so much in terms of American politics, with the rise of the Christian right, and then religion becoming this player, um, yeah, I, I think it reinforces a, 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 the taking up of, if you will, a kind of old historical narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you look at, for example, even uh, moving from, uh, if you will, uh, centuries ago to looking at the rationale that was used with European colonialism, it was the crown and the cross, you know, to legitimate. Right. And you'd even see generals, French and British, using that that kind of language. And then if you if you you know if you fast forward it, uh, and you look at uh, a good deal of the uh, preachers. Uh, who not only write but are on television when they go to talk about and demonize uh, uh, Muslims, that's there. Now, again, one has to admit that this kind of ultra-right type position, um, I, I, it, it's hard to get exact words here, um, uh, can be found also on the other side. Okay, right. So if, if we were using the phrase hardline Christian fundamentalist, use a certain kind of rhetoric, one would say you also ran into hardline Islamic fundamentalists, you know, who then use a kind of reverse. You know, each looking at the history in a very kind of sense that today is very much informed by uh, what we see or what, what they would, the way they would paint history. What they conveniently overlook is that there are many examples of cooperation historically. That is that while people were fighting each other over religion, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, Christians and Muslims were engaging in trade, etc., and weren't even aware of some of these wars. You know, we act as if everybody had their TV on and was watching CNN all over the world. Right. Um, all right. Um, so I want to talk again a little bit about TV. Um, yeah. We ended on that. And so c- candidates during this election cycle, most notably Trump. Um, often cite misleading, completely false evidence um, about Muslims, minorities. Um, yet even in your case, like on your website uh, for the Bridge Initiative, you, you have a lot of informative articles. When you present these facts and prove that these claims are false, it seems to fall on deaf ears and not really make a difference. So how can one fight against prejudice in a situation like that? Well, I think that um, 
I think that the challenge is, A, I think um, the first level is to realize the depth of the challenge and to demonstrate that to people. And I can tell you, um, I speak all over the United States, all over the world. I've probably done about three million miles in my career of traveling and speaking. And certainly uh, in a post-9-11 world, everything got ratcheted up sort of beyond belief. And interestingly enough, and this is the first time this has happened, usually when I speak, I'm asked to speak on a lot of topics, you know, radicalism, global terrorism, Islamophobia, Islam and democracy, because I write on these topics. But right. this particular year, and particular, uh, I'd say the last six or seven months, the majority of invitations I've had um, have involved me speaking uh, broadly on Islamophobia and its impact and its relationship to uh, uh, radicalization as well as uh, civil liberties at the UN, uh, mm -hmm. uh, at um, major universities, uh, Santa Barbara. I'll be speaking at Stanford on it next month, uh, Arizona State, um, University of Alberta last week. And, and a majority of times, and also in Vienna and wherever else I was, uh, twice in Vienna and then some some other European situation uh, in the UK, uh, I've been asked to speak about Islamophobia, and then I talk about Islamophobia, the media, et cetera, and how to address it. And I find audiences incredibly responsive, however, mm. um, however much it might be in areas or uh, in cities or towns um, – that are very conservative. I mean, you know, I've spoken in conservative areas of Florida, all over the place. If you really lay the stuff out, uh, because people are polarized on this at one level, but, you know, there are people who are um, Islamophobes, that is, who are anti-Muslim and anti-Islam in a very self-conscious, nasty way. There are people who hold positions that are biased and would lead to discrimination out of, simply out of ignorance. You know what I mean? Right. In other words, they are influenced by the uh, the writings of Islamophobes or or, or seeing them on TV, etc. And so there are, there, are, there are audiences that you normally would think are areas that are going to be a problem people open to. So the first thing one needs to do, and that's what Bridge does, is one looks at the narratives that are out there and it's, it attempts to uh, uh, look at what are the attitudes and behaviors contained in these narratives? To what extent do they really undermine pluralism, undermine uh, uh, civil liberties, etc.? So that, that's the first level. And who are the people that are doing this? And what might their agendas be? You know, are they on, you know, are they on, you know, uh, do they receive major funding, you know, for this, uh, you know, etc.? But the second thing is get putting out information that uh, presents Alternative narratives, in other words, where you put out uh, stories. By narratives, I don't mean, um, you know, some kind of uh, intellectual presentation, but rather you look at, let's see what Muslims are really like, you know. Uh, well, yes, we have this data, so you need to get that out, data done by whom, and what does it say, and what did the attorney general just say, or uh, recently, uh, and the deputy attorney general, what has the president said? What do the data say? But even more, who are the Muslims that we're talking about? You know, who are the Muslims in America? Who are the Muslims wherever? You know, uh, 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 we're concerned about our safety and security. Gee, isn't it funny that 90 to 92 percent of the people 
who are the most insecure and are the victims are actually in the Muslim world? And how, what are they concerned about? The same thing that we're concerned about, safety and security. Gallup data shows that. Uh, uh, do they all hate us? No. They have a problem with our foreign policy, the majority. But data shows an overwhelming majority admire our technology, our education, and our freedoms. Uh, and then getting stories out about Muslims. And we see more of that. You see it on our site, but we pick it up even off mainstream media now. That is, Muslims who are out there like everybody else who are uh, uh, making contributions uh, to our country, to world civilization, who are Nobel laureates, etc. All of that's important. The other thing that's important is how does one begin to address media? One has to, on the one hand, recognize that media has been a significant part of the problem. What we need to do is realize and, and get that, those statistics out there because I think even media people would be a bit stunned at just how high that is. But I think that now what one needs to do is to develop uh, more and more programs where one works with media and one is able to bring out stories that are going to be seen as relevant and worth putting out there. And, and, and build it into an argument that basically says, look, it's fine to cover and it's expected that you would cover um, acts of terrorism or extremism. But the question is, is there a broader context in terms of the kind of coverage that you're giving? Otherwise, people simply walk away and think that this is representative of everybody. You know what I mean? It's like if, if you right. run a series of stories about, uh, let's say, uh, in, in my time when I was growing up, of the mafia, you know, Italian mafia, mm -hmm. and people have no context. They, they, you know, data still shows us more than 50% of Americans say that uh, they don't know a Muslim, that they have no, you know, never, never known a Muslim, had a relationship with a Muslim. More than 50% say they don't know much about Islam. So, you know, if you have that with an ethnic group too, then there's a problem there. So I think that that's the way it's got to be addressed. But I, I, I think that it's a broad-based thing. It's not only that you, you, you got to work with media on how this can be addressed, so that it's, you know, uh, in terms of get, getting media to broaden its context. And there is, at the same time, there have been some very good shows that have been put out in media, but not enough. And too often, it's stuff on PBS. PBS is fine, but let's face it, the majority of Americans look at, you know, Fox, for example, et cetera. Right. You know? um, and, and then I think the other side is you've got to get the information out there uh, as much as you can uh, through um, the Internet. And the, the sad thing about the Internet is it's a great source for knowledge. It's also a great source for just the opposite. And, right. and Internet can be manipulated. You know, when you talk about search engine optimization, you know, and digital marketing, and mm -hmm. the mastery of those tools allow those that have the funding and the wherewithal to have their message be among the first things that pop up. You know, right. um, you're probably aware of this, but I've, I've seen it in a lot of cases, including my own, where um, um, I can give a talk uh, and then it gets carried, gets critiqued, let's say, on the Internet. And the next morning, it'll be on the front page if you Google my name. And there might right. even be, in one case, there was one before me and one after me. In other words, it's, oh. I, I, I have a lot of hits. Depends on when you look at it. It can be three million. It can be. I looked today, it was supposedly much, much higher than that. But okay. the point is, with search engine optimization, if somebody goes to look up something, it'll occur on the first page. Or 
the ability, for example, that often happens when people uh, do an article. For example, if I if we do a positive article, we might get quoted, okay? But we don't like feed it to somebody and say to them, "Why don't you publish it? Publish this under a different title. Change the first few words, so that in effect a critique is not just appearing once, but it's appearing in five or eight different places." And therefore, mm. the naive person goes and looks and says, oh, my God, there must be something here. You've got eight different right. sources, you know, saying this. That makes sense. Um, to, ask, to ask the next question, sort of going off, because uh, you brought up the uh, Italian-Americans. Um, why has the targeting of specific minorities, in this case Muslims, been a historical problem for the United States? I mean, previously it was Catholics and Jews, and before that Irish and Italians and so on. Yeah, and even, even Chinese. I was, I was amazed. I, I was reading something, I guess it was 19th century, where um, uh, there was, there was a, an Asian actor, a Chinese actor, I forget now, I, I, I took the notes someplace, but what was amazing about it was it actually said something like, these people will undermine our culture, you know, they will drag us down. Now we have the mm-hmm. opposite approach to understanding, you know, uh, uh, you know China and, and Asia. I think that, um, you know, I think that we're, again, America is a great country. Uh, it, 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 it brought a special vision of democracy. Uh, it was multi-ethnic, multi-religious, you know, from its very beginnings. But the way most of us were taught history, the way we learned it, uh, we see it even now when we when we appreciate our founding fathers, but we realize that they also had clay feet, you know. They weren't all, quote, saints, you know. Um, and um, And certainly when we what we what we lose is this sense that there was incredible, for example, religious pluralism. Well, a number right. of the groups that fled to America to escape persecution, some of them remained pluralistic. Many of them did not. In other words, you know, here they began to suppress and marginalize others. Um, and um, you know, if you look at the Puritan experience and and then see, you know, how open, you know, you know, were you know. In time, were they? Or if you consider the fact that, you know, why was there a separate Catholic colony, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in Baltimore, etc.? You know, and why not spread all over the place? There was a dominance of, you know, of, for example, forms of Protestantism and even uh, a conflict between them. But basically, America was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. So there was right. great um, – there was division that we often don't see in our history. There was also a getting along together in that period. And one might say, oh, gee, they got along, you know, those that got along because they were Christian. But suddenly when ethnic Catholics came, well, they were Christian, but it didn't work that way. You know what I mean? And so what we've seen is that often when you get the waves, then the people that come who uh, become the second or third generation, whether it's in terms of ethnicity or religion, uh, they forget that that history. I mean, so for example, right. uh, um, the uh, after 9/11, there was a front page picture. I think it was the New York Times. I forget, and it was a gas station and the guy and a big sign that the owner put, "Send them back where they came from." Right? The name of the mm-hmm. gas station was clearly an Italian American name, and I remember right. looking at it and thinking, you know, this guy is probably second generation, and he's acting like he came over on the Mayflower. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, he doesn't even realize that we're a country of, and we've seen this when new ethnicities come at different times, and especially at times if the economy is bad, 
that just exacerbates that situation. But, but yeah, I mean, our history is one of ideals, but whether we're talking about equality for African Americans or for women or, uh, you know, uh, equality when it comes to the civil liberties of, uh, of new ethnic groups, that's really varied. Some ethnic groups have been able to come if they come at the appropriate time and others not. And I think people block that out. I mean, even with Italian Americans, they sort of think, or ethnic Catholics think, well, there was probably some discrimination, et cetera. There was violence also. Uh, and we're only beginning. You know, there have been now some movies that kind of show, you know, that, that part of our history. So I think that at times we need to understand better our history. And as it were, the demons uh, that are, are always, always uh, threatened, you know. Um, I mean, certainly, for example, you know, the notion of original sin within Roman Catholicism, to me, always talks about the fact that there is a dark side, you know, and, and, you know, right. to, to human nature. We have freedom to do great things, but historically we can also do nasty things. And in fact, right. the same thing is true in history. Some of the great democracies of the world, the 20th century um, was probably the bloodiest century in the, in, in the history of humankind. Brzezinski's written about that. And and, and the wars were fought in the name of secularism, nationalism, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. Things that we admire at some times, but if twisted, they become a problem. Right. Well, uh, let me ask you then, what can regular Americans do to help their fellow Muslim Americans and, um, you know, people who come from other countries as well feel safer and more welcome in the U.S. in what's become an increasingly hostile environment? I, I think that we have to be our country has to and and i think it is it is it is occurring but it it it's also occurring in a context in which at times there is a almost uh tidal wave um uh of islamophobia uh, that is when 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 event occurs after a period of calm uh then everything hits the fan uh and um, what we have to be aware of is that um, uh, it, 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 we need to have change, not simply from above, but from below. And so it becomes very important, not only what we're teaching in our schools, um, and this, this can sound very abstract, and it's not. We're training the next generation. And the next generation, the good thing about it is, in fact, if you look at data, the the younger generations tend to be less prejudiced in general than the older. That's very understandable. The older generations in America and Europe were raised in basically either – they were raised in societies that felt that they were all white. Even though we had a significant number of African Americans, remember, in America, they were slaves, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they were second-class citizens. And um, now with a younger generation, unless parents have lots of money, and can find a really prejudiced private school, their right. kids are going to wind up going to a high school at some point, even if it's a posh high school, or a university that is very multi-ethnic, multicultural. Now, that's a good thing. Also, within that context in universities, and it is happening in many universities, you need to see more and more of a co- more coverage that deal with global history, that deal with issues that have to do with um, diversity, um, that have to do with uh, religious pluralism, etc. cetera, uh, then you, you need the, the religions to do this. Now, religious leaders do speak out in addition to the preachers of hate, and there are a fair number of them. 
So we got to remember, you know, and um, that are there. But they do speak out. But the problem is it has to be integrated into the training of all the new religious leaders that come out. Because for people who do go to churches and synagogues and, you know, mosques, etc., you know, it's it's the family and it's and for those who are uh, uh, people of faith, it's it's both family and, if you will, the, the religious upbringing that that give us that. And then, you know, an important thing also is the issue of civil liberties. And here's where some of our NGOs play a very important part. The, the fact mm-hmm. is that the civil liberties of peoples, the civil liberties today of all we have to do is listen to the candidates. The civil liberties of uh, of Mexicans, of Hispanics, uh, and the civil liberties of, of Muslims uh, have become considerable issues. And, and it's not just recent. It's not just now. Uh, 2008 election, when Obama ran, 2012, 2010 congressional elections, mm-hmm. th- these issues that of, 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 of bias towards Islam and Muslims and of a threat to Muslim civil liberties were right out front. It's Think about in the past, Rick Santorum, Michelle Votman, Newt Gingrich, Herman Cain. I mean, you can go, you know, right down the line uh, and then bring it up to the contemporary period. So I think that it's got to come from uh, from below, and and, and that, that's going to take time. I mean, from my point of view, and I, I hate to put it this way because I didn't expect it to be this long, it's going to take another decade for this to shake out, at least. Uh, I mean, and the analogy I would give, and again, analogies always can limp, okay, is when you've got something that's a real traumatic situation, and then when it gets exploited by political leaders, okay, it's not just saying, well, the analogy is you take a demigod like Hitler and look what happened and how uh, something in a country like Germany, which was seen as sophisticated and where Jews played an important role in society, you know, Look, look at look at what happened to them, but also look at the silence that came about among many others, and how they could be induced to that. But you know, one just needs to think about other situations in which, um, um, for example, the uh, Iranian Revolution and the taking of American hostages. We're still playing out decades later the fallout from that, both in the U.S. and in Iran. In terms of our political political leaders in both countries, not all, but some of them, you know, who are playing off almost like a sense of, you know, as if we've always been uh, at war with Iran from time immemorial. They don't talk that way, mm-hmm. but it's as if, you know, they don't remember how things came about, etc. Uh, and we're playing it out when we then see people uh, who will be saying um, with not only objecting to the Iran uh, uh, deal – but, you know, who will, who will say things like, well, we should bomb Qum when, when they get upset. In other words, when politicians right. feel free to say that. Now, you know, when an Iranian politician says that or a member of parliament, we say, well, that proves they're fanatics, you know. Right. In our country, that's not an issue. So I think that all of that's, you know, important. But, but I would kind of underscore everything we've talked about with this, mm-hmm. this notion. What makes – why we have to be sensitive is that – if you look at the hard, hard data, Muslims are integrated, fully integrated socially, economically, and educationally, and most Americans aren't aware of that. And, and you know, right. that, that, that their educational level as a religious community is second to American Jews, 
You know, mm-hmm. uh, that Muslim women are as educated as Muslim men in this country. So people have to look at when they're looking at American Muslims, what's the situation in America, you know, and not be looking, you know, wherever else they want to look. Um, so the, 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 the problem is that at the same time we say that studies have been showing that in the last year, Islamophobia is at an all time high and negative media coverage is at an all time high. And all of this occurs within a broader context that that that, that I think uh, underscores the danger. And that is, to the astonishment of some in America and to many in Europe or the world, when you look at American politics, these presidential primaries, etc., uh, and the discourse, mm-hmm. it shows a country which has a major problem. I mean, it's surface. We have a major problem with, uh, with the issue of um, uh, uh, pluralism uh, and, and civil liberties. You know, I mean, the level of, of, of anti-immigrant rhetoric, the level of anti-Muslim rhetoric, and the level of even the, the rhetoric of violence, not only of, of bias, discrimination, and the rhetoric of, of hate, but even the rhetoric of, of violence and, and the, the clashes, I think, have shocked, you know, many, many people. Uh, and, and for some, I, I'm not trying to get into the politics here, but one can't help it. Mm-hmm. For some, when they look at, the prospect of someone like Trump, who speaks like a demagogue and whips people up the way he does, and the kinds of positions that are taken, um, this should be a cause of concern. You know, um, it's it's going to be less of a cause of concern. It's going to be a cause of concern for everybody. But let me tell you, you know, if you're if you're not white, uh, and you know, if you're not white and a Christian, um, you're going to be even more concerned. It seems to me. Um, uh, with, you know, with some of this, so I think that it's a it's 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 a very strange time. Um, you know, we I think a lot of us uh, get a sense of history where there's an underlying truth that things have gotten better historically. You know, so we have a sense of sort of we not only look at if you will physical evolution, we have a sense of oh, we, you know, we move from divine right kingdoms to the emergence of democracies or whatever. But at the same time, this period in the 21st century and what we're going through now shows you that it's not uh, a seamless evolution. There's a de- the, the threat can be devolution. And, for example, a study by, I think it's Freedom House, basically says that in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been more of a threat to democracy in the last 10 to 15 years. There's a, there's a breakdown, a, a greater breakdown of democracy in the world. Uh, and I think that's that's a risk we look at uh, today in the United States. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Then I'm just going to ask you one last question. Um, is there any general advice um, or words of wisdom you have for the future policymakers at Georgetown or for everyone else in general? I, I think that I think future policymakers at Georgetown should take advantage of what they have at Georgetown. Uh, and some of them do, and I, I think some of them probably don't think of it, but I think more of them may. You know, when I got into the field, the reality of it is that when I got into the field, okay, people believed, I'll do this very quickly, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the sense of modernization and development at that time was that modernization required the westernization and secularization of society. What did that mean for religion? As one famous uh, uh, social scientist and expert on the Middle East said, Muslims had a choice between Mecca and Meccanization. Okay, but that was the general attitude towards religion. So religion, if you if you talk to IR professors who were trained, 
religion was never taken seriously and its role in contemporary society in the study of IR, in the social sciences, etc. It was looked at in terms of the past, but not in terms of what could be happening in the contemporary world. Then we had the resurgence, we had the Iranian Revolution, Islamic resurgence, and then global resurgence of religion, where suddenly you see religion today playing out in the politics of India, Burma, etc., etc., okay? Now, but in those days, in the old days, this wasn't part of our educational system. It wasn't part of training diplomats who would go out and serve in cultures. There was no feeling. The attitude was religion was a retardant to development. So that was true. You had to overcome it, but it wasn't like you ought to be doing that. And when you went out in the area, you would talk to your westernized alternative elites. You never felt the need to deal with the culture and the religions of the majority of people. All of that's changed, and Georgetown is positioned, and has been for quite a few years, because of the nature of the place, because of the creation um, um, by Father Walsh of the School of Foreign Service and his vision, um, because of the creation of centers. And so if you look at Georgetown now, you have, you have centers that deal with uh, all the, the regions of the world. You have centers in particular in terms of the stuff that – the areas that I'm, I'm interested in, you've got the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, you've got the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding, you now have a Center for Jewish Civilization. Um, you have all of that there. And so for that next generation uh, of diplomats, I think, realizing that um, the role that, that culture plays, the whole area of culture and politics, is, is, is an imperative. When I came to Georgetown in 1993, okay, there was no – interest in culture and politics or talking about religion, culture, and politics. I mean, and here you have the most, the oldest, the most sophisticated, and certainly one of the best schools of foreign service. When I took the title, that is, you know, uh, you know, when I was, I had several titles, as you know, university professor, professor of Islamic studies, but my main one right. was, is professor of religion and international affairs. I thought somebody had that title. Certainly they would have it, but there was no right. such you know, title. Um, and that's changed tremendously. If you look at the SSS, you know, undergraduate degree and the things that, that students are looking at. So future diplomats have to really realize that, um, that it's that, that, that combination. You don't answer the major questions of, of, uh, of, uh, of politics and history and, and, and culture unless you spend time learning about the religion and culture of the area and the role that it plays. That's why, for example, today, a major topic that people want to talk about is not just global terrorism and, and thinking about it in terms of al-Qaeda, etc., but it's even the broader idea of religion and violence. You know, government agencies have been holding conferences, etc. All of this would have been unheard of in the past. I think students who are in Georgetown have a leg up. They have two legs up if they take advantage of this uh, opportunity in their training. And not only because the topics, if you look across our curriculum, are covered, but because you have a diversity of faculty who come at it from different disciplines. And again, that's important because I still think a problem we have in the academy uh, at times is that people privilege their discipline. Not all, but many of them kind of secretly feel, oh, you know, this other, this other outfit – it sort of covers these topics, but my discipline has the inroads, you know. Right. Um, 
You know what I mean? You know, we got this, and, and I, I think that that's, that's missing the mark. Anyway, um, I hope this had some coherence to it. I'm not sure. But uh, no, no, it did, actually. This was very informative and very interesting. Uh, so I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talking to me and for giving this interview. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.